Welcome back to the new year. And I'm beginning the year the same way as I left the last one as a dad. Uh, <laughs> I had five requests the other day to explain the bean dad phenomenon. You know about this? I think you've heard about this. Uh, yeah, a little. I watched it mostly secondhand through other people's reactions and stuff. I didn't like go into it. First of all, because like when when the, the thread was still up, it was excruciatingly long and I got the impression of it from like the first couple. I'm like, Oh, all right. I'm just going to watch the reactions from here on. But it well, was... it's a thread describing six hours of pain in his daughter's life because um, he showed her the can opener and then wouldn't describe anything about how it functions. He, he hands her the tool and then wants her ex to examine it and find the purpose of the tool by using it, uh, which a uh, can opener, not a very intuitive tool for a child. Like, uh, I, I'm thinking. I would say like, it's not an intuitive tool for adults, even. Yeah. You know, some of those things are funky. I mean, he even admits it, it even cuts funny, and it. Uh, he, she started getting it right, and it wasn't working at the same time. And um, so, five people asked me for my advice that this is good dadding. Um, I don't know when I became the spokesman for all dads, but I'm proud to uh, take up that mantle. Um, uh, all dads are meant to be pleasing, are designed to be pleasing. Um, that's that's one of the memes that sprung from this. He he just he decided that a can opener is aesthetically designed to be pleasing, which is something I've never heard before. It's very uh, odd. I don't know about that, uh, especially because there are all kinds of can openers. Uh, can <laughs> openers are a lot like people, and that they come in different shapes and sizes. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they're mechanical. Sometimes they're you know ma manual. <laughs> Welcome back to the Twin Geekcast, a podcast about ca how can openers are like people. <laughs> uh, we've been away a while. I don't think we've recorded in a month, maybe a little bit more than a month now. Uh, maybe not quite a month. It's still the first week of January. Like I think it was a couple year? of weeks. It was like, yeah, this is the first podcast in a year. <laughs> it is. Uh, we've uh, been gone since 2020, that horrible season of discontent. Yeah, but, uh, you know... I think uh, it was not the the worst towards the end. I, I, I'm feeling a, at least a little nostalgic now, looking back to some at, of the things of 2020. The dead? Oh, <laughs> no, no, okay. 20, 2020. There's some things. Uh, you know, I, I had a nice holiday season there. The the interim year between them. You know, I see. A, it looks like you did as well. I'm, I'm noticing some of the differences here. You're a little cleaned up. Got a nice haircut going on. Yeah, uh, I like your your Exorcist shirt there. Oh, thank you very much. It, it, that, I wanted a shirt that said Exorcist, so I got one that said it 200 times. It just, yeah, it's just the title uh, font for the Exorcist plastered in various points all over the, your shirt there. Which no is, free ads, but I always look at like that dumb good site, which is always like on my Facebook, Twitter. I'm like, they have some like iconic old uh, properties and stuff, but I never want to buy stuff from a feed like that because I'm like, Aren't all the Facebook people seeing this? Like, does yeah, every the, movie person with a Facebook also get the speed? So those like custom ones that, that you know, yeah. like the, the bots who like listen to your, everything you type, and then they yeah. customize some T-shirt. You know, I saw one yesterday. Said. I saw one yesterday that said, "I only pay attention to dogs and hockey." Like it's taking like the, <laughs> taking like the two things I talk about, and then like making a T-shirt out of them. That doesn't make sense. And, and you're like, damn, that is. <laughs> weird but also i kind of want that <laughs> i i did it's like a little barn in the background with these kids on ice skates and and i think there might be a small dog somewhere in the picture but i feel like it designed something based on my keywords like it's not like an actual design like of an artist um 
I keep the, getting the future is a like weird this. place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where we're getting products. Um, there are like a few shirt templates. You see one that's like a like a half circle, like it would be a sun rising, and then it gets um, that's just like the name of a product with like a dark outline, or or you get like names with like ampersands. Uh, I mean, there's like three different ways that advertising can design a t-shirt right now, and it's terrifying. Well, speaking of uh, designing t-shirts, that's something over the holiday season we were able to do. I don't have mine with me, but I did bring my, oh, my mug to showcase as well. We have mug some... Uh, great. Yeah, we have a couple of merch things now that people can check out on the, the website. We have a little banner you can go to at the top of the page for a store, which has a, currently a small supply of things, a phone case, a couple of uh, sweatshirt designs uh, with our logo and such on them, and these cool mugs, which I have enjoyed drinking coffee out of recently. The sweater is also very nice and comfortable. It would be better if it were a video podcast, but it's a nice clean white <laughs> mug and uh, has our logo over it and website address. Uh, the twingeeks.com. You'll see our store link on there. Yeah. So uh, please uh, check that out. The proceeds go to uh, funding this show on an annual basis. And, the proceeds uh, go sure... to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and also buying things like uh, these new headphones. Uh, nice. They're uh, nice. I was going to comment on the headphone. They they are uh, so all of your you know the the money you donate to us through uh, product purchases go to improving my ability to listen to Calvin. <laughs> uh, not you in particular. Uh, I haven't gotten enough yet to buy a new microphone, but maybe if you buy enough sweatshirts and mugs, uh, you can hear my booming blossoming voice uh, in in better quality even than you get now. Even also, if you want David to continue eating, I would suggest buying a sweatshirt. Um, yeah, uh, he's uh, on a canned soup budget right now. I've um, got about uh, ten cans of uh, Campbell's chicken noodle <laughs> left, about five uh, broccoli soup, uh, and then like the rest is just like uh, cans of you know the leftover broth that I've kind of been collecting <laughs> and keeping together. Combined broths. Yeah. Uh, today we're doing a pretty exciting thing is that we're talking about not our 10 favorite films of last year, but uh, our 10 favorite watches of, it could be from any year. Yeah, uh, the first things we've watched, like, or the first time we watched a lot of these films, because, you know, 2020 gave us a lot of time to watch things. That's, that's what most of us did. And, if anything uh, were true, it's that. It gave us a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, I, like you say, though, there are good things. Like, I got a lot of time with my family, and I got a lot of time with my wife and, and my daughter. Sure. It was not uh, the worst for me, at least. Uh, yeah. I I survived 2020. Uh, I'm going to put that on a mug and put it in our store as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I, I think I got a lot out of it cinema wise uh not so much from 2020 itself uh i watched like yeah five movies personally uh i know we could have done Same, like a top yeah. 20 of 2020 if, if we were just going off of what you had seen but i don't think that would have been as interesting a show like no i i'd rather something where we have a dialogue because uh just me talking about i have already talked about all my favorites first of all uh, they've all come up apart from one on the podcast so, uh that will come up next week i believe uh, or no two months from now okay we have time that's the other cool. thing is everything's staggered so there's a lot of things that i want to put in the list and i can't even talk about for two or three more months uh, uh, that's, the, the that's a long season. time for an embargo that's a really the, long time <laughs> yeah the award season with the pushback oscars um january is not january anymore march is the new january so 
uh, it's going to be a real weird re-entry point for the for the season. But uh, this is a better way to handle it anyway. This way I get to talk about movies that I like that aren't just 2020 movies for once. Yeah, well, I'm excited because I think it offers a greater variety, uh, uh, you know, a, a larger field to pull from and, uh, you know, some fresh perspectives on films that uh, either, you know, I, I think there's going to be a good variety here of things people know about, uh, you know, some classics that uh, both of us have overlooked prior to now, but also some hidden gems that, you know, maybe people didn't know about about or more cult favorites that, you know, are just now getting a little bit more attention. And this is an opportunity to really uh, herald some of uh, some of all of those there, really. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy with my list. I think uh, 2020 was one of my best uh, collections of, of films, like some of my favorites, like of viewing experiences in general. Like I definitely had some brilliant uh, watches this year, just just some great uh, things like like definitely some highlights that I'll go forward with uh, and look back on fondly. Since I watched 800 movies last year, <laughs> I feel like by virtue of quantity, I had that's, to have watched a lot of good movies. That's uh, not an exaggeration. I'm pretty sure that's an actual statistic. It's like 790 something. I think I barely missed 800. I'll have to look. Mine, mine was around like the 450 range, I think, okay. <laughs> which is still like, yeah. that's nothing to sneeze at. But no, like you just you, you come in all the time and you dwarf me with these things. But what there's got to be like 200 of those were like five minute short films right at least i'd say at least 70 of them are shorts um yeah those festivals really give you lots of opportunity for those that's true yeah uh maybe more than 70 considering uh let's see uh who, who wants to start here do you want to you want to do your 10 sure yeah i, I got no problem starting we'll okay. go that and then you want to go like back and forth my yeah. 10 your 10 i think it would right. be boring if just one of us did 10 and then the other nah, one, so. yeah, that would be super super yeah. lame we got to go back and forth so i'm gonna start with my 10 here i don't know if we're gonna list them like this as well with timestamps. like if you're gonna list the lists and then the timestamps as well and the probably not i want people to listen to it I'll just, okay so I'll, sorry guys you just yeah. gotta listen to all of our films here <laughs> listen through you can't cherry pick them you're just gonna have to take it all all right, so uh, my number ten, I'm I'm going with an early film. This is a, uh, a a silent film that I watched early on in this year. I think it was like February I saw this, and it was uh, the Adventures of Prince Ahmed from 1926. And that's the early animation, right? Yeah, uh, Lot Runninger. It's also a film directed by a woman, which is a nice representation here on my list. Uh, <laughs> and it's the oldest surviving stop motion feature film and it's done in in a uh, shadow silhouette style uh in this beautiful gorgeous film and it's uh, a conglomeration of a couple of the stories from a thousand and one nights um and it has a great sense of adventure and artistry to it that i just i i absolutely fell in love with it was a very easy watch it was it's an hour long uh a absolutely gorgeous um and, and it's really inventive with its uh creativity and the the craft in it the craft is just unbelievable like uh I, I think there's so much appreciation to be had for animation and and it's one of those like the silhouette animation is a more niche craft that has basically like is, is all but gone obviously uh 
everything being computer animated today, I think we forget that there are uh, a whole host of different animation techniques out there just beyond hand-drawn and stop motion and stuff. And this one is is an early example of what can be really great about it. And uh, I think it also is a testament to the expressive quality of, of silent cinema <laughs> because so much of it has to be visually communicated. And interestingly enough, without visual expression from from facial performance either because it's all yeah. entirely black and, and silhouette i know this is one you watched as well this year i don't think it's on your list but was really uh, was really taken by it anyway though i had a great time uh, yeah really stunning how well with the silhouette technique it just how vivid and colorful everything is but then how it could use shadows in that color yeah that's something else to be said is that there, there is color to it because of course the silent film process allowed for tinting of, of the frames right. and such and that was a more recent restoration i believe that restored the color to the film which you know for a long time it was just plain black and white which yeah would, ro would rob the film a lot of a lot of its visual expressiveness um, oh it looks so so vibrant so cool yeah, just these really uh, candescent colors, you know, that, you know, bring the film to life even more already. And again, just a great sense of adventure to it, which I'm I'm always down for. I love a good uh, kind of like globe trotting film. And it really goes all over the place. It's got a great mystique to it. I love the sequence towards the end where the, the wizard and the the witch, the ogre witch or whatever, they battle it out by transforming into these, these different animals. It's a great sequence and uh, just really entertaining film all around. I like when animation, when the form feels like it's at play, when the creators feel like they're playing with something. And in a way, this feels like shadow puppets to me or something. Like, oh, really, it is. It's really novel. It absolutely is. And, you know, it might be higher if the film itself had, had something more like yeah. complex thematically. Like, it, it really is just kind of like an, a straightforward adventure, but uh, such a great medium through which to, to render it. And uh, I think one of the, the, the best encapsulations of that I've seen. Uh, one of the great things too, it's it's hard for it to age. I mean, when you use yeah. a form like this, it, uh, there are some crude elements and aspects to like how it how it has aged, but uh, just the the form itself. I mean, it'll always look the way it does now, uh, and and you would still hopefully want to make something that looks like this. Yeah, I I just absolutely loved it and uh i i managed to pick up the blu-ray just before Christmas cool. time okay. as well so it's definitely going on my list of uh wallpaper movies to have when people <laughs> are over as we like to discuss it would be a great one for that definitely um, all right let me hear your 10 now okay so ours are our lists are already proven compatible in some way um i've also gone with an animation with uh, a unique form and aesthetic I've taken the tale of Princess Kaguya at number 10, um, which has been controversial only within <laughs> our group. Everyone else I've ever known has loved this movie. Yeah, uh, this is not one I've seen yet, but okay. I know that my, my fiance has and she enjoys it quite a bit. I think what I'm saying about like spending so much time with my daughter and around family at home, um, this is beautiful to me because it, it's really a story about a dad and a daughter and uh, this guy finding this this girl in the woods uh, and she has these magical properties but because everything's so expressive and not just painterly but everything feels like it's born of a brush um, uh, more than like most other even hand-drawn animation I've I've seen it really feels like there's a canvas here and that Ghibli is painting their most imaginative story onto this canvas and in, in the most beautiful um swirling colors um i 
it's become Ezra's favorite movie of all time. <laughs> really? Great. Yeah. At four years old, she's chosen Princess Kaguya. So she has better taste than I do for one. <laughs> yeah. I, I th- looking at it, I'm just looking over yeah. the, the pictures here on IMDb and it does look visually stunning. The The art style of it is uh, quite uh, enchanting. Uh, the the hand-drawn style of this. It lo- looks like a, uh, a painting kind of uh, come to life here. <laughs> I and wish it does, it... yeah, the, there's a sense of whimsy that just kind of leaps off the, the frames here without knowing much about the film itself. Uh, the, the, the art style alone is enough to make me, you know, w- want to take a look at it. Every time I watch it, it's slipping up my ratings. Like, I think I started with like, this is a really bold and imaginative take and it just takes a while to get there. And then the more I watch, it, I find it's just enchanting. Like I'm so drawn into the art style. I want to write about it. And, um, there's a, there's a bit with the dad and the princess grows up really fast. So it's a, it's a real, um, not a Benjamin Button situation. I don't know what you call it. Big, maybe when your kid grows too fast, um, a big situation. Uh, there's, there's something to that too, where you're realizing as a parent that you, you have to let go in certain ways as the kid grows up um, and the kid's put in the middle of a field and she's going between like a, this group of other kids and her dad and her dad's uh, standing there clapping, princess, come here. And uh, Ezra makes me do that now all the time. So uh, <laughs> when I go pick her up from school, you know, doing a little bit of princess, come here. Um, and then the other kids are yelling, little bamboo. And so she does that game with me. She's always like walking around, wobbling, little bamboo. Um, it's just a remarkable part of her development that she's gotten into this. And I've seen her, her senses really develop. Uh, Song of the Sea is her second favorite currently, so uh, she's got real kino taste in the animations. Mm, it definitely seems like it. I'm glad you're uh, exposing her to to a wide variety and not just throwing <laughs> on the latest uh, kind of whatever Disney show or whatever they've put out on Plus. Um, I I also want to appreciate Takahata from um, uh, Ghibli, who's who's died a few years ago, I believe, but. Uh, I also watched Grave of Fireflies the last week, which I've been putting off forever. Not an Ezra movie, but I, <laughs> um, what do I like? I like everything about Grave of Fireflies. <laughs> it's it's a nice movie, uh, nice and meditative. No, it's it's about like war through the eyes of children, and it, it's so much. But I think he's such a talented storyteller that I I felt like he really deserved a place on my list because he's left a lasting impact on my year that I won't forget. Mm-hmm. That, that'll be an interesting here. Cause of course, like even these lists is kind of comprehensive. We can make them. They're going <laughs> to overlook some of the things like we might watch uh, like a, a host of films from a, a filmmaker, you know, yeah. that we really enjoy that, that might not make the list uh, just be just by virtue of, you know, other things kind of really standing out uh, or, you know, like re- rediscovering someone even, uh, you know, since this is just first watches, but I'm glad that that one was made it. And so far our lists are, you know, like just, just in this first entry here, they're kind of mirroring each other in an interesting way. I'll be interested to see how they kind of go. We really don't know. I think they'll, about- uh, yeah, we also, <laughs> by the way, we don't know each other's list. We haven't gone over this at all. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to see what you have as well. We haven't. I think, I think we have a vague idea of what some might be based on just the conversations we've had and the no <laughs> we've talked know, every time. day so yeah <laughs> we should know so what each other like there's a couple of things maybe no like big surprises but it'll, yeah. it'll be interesting uh even like this next one i think this one i've got is my number nine is uh you, you won't be too surprised by uh and that's uh 
Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise from 1932, okay. which uh, we were going to talk, we, me and you watched uh, over our break here together, which was a great viewing, I thought, and gave me even stronger appreciation for the film, even though I had watched it like a month earlier. Uh, and it's just, it's a, it's a really fantastic body comedy in the way that only Lubitsch could make it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's sexy and sleek but also you know it's got a crassness to it that's married with its elegance and class uh and it's it's got so much uh charm to it and and the humor is is really great the cast of characters of course is terrific uh so what you've got uh it's a romantic trifecta here between Herbert Marshall, Kay Francis, and Miriam Hopkins, with uh, Marshall being a kind of gentlemanly thief who uh, teams up with uh, Miriam Hopkins here to try and uh, seduce and steal from uh, Kay Francis's uh, elegant but kind of clueless uh, perfume heiress. Uh, But of course, she ends up uh, falling in love with him and vice versa, and it causes this... uh, you know, triangle between the three as he he has this internal strife to continue grifting her, but also you know cater to her because he just proves adept at like running her business for <laughs> yeah right and it's really great and it, and in the meantime you also have these two kind of uh, comical suitors in the form of Edward Everett Horton and uh, Charles Ruggles and and Horton god i love him as a character actor uh just even from like all the the, the fred and ginger films he's kind of plays in he's in a couple of other lubitsch films including another one i watched earlier this year which i loved which was uh bluebeard's eighth wife um, okay yeah which is a lot of fun in and of itself um and so this this was kind of a year as well for watching some more lubitsch to me but Trouble in Paradise definitely feels like the most emblematic of Lubitsch's style. It has everything that we come to know and define Lubitsch with uh, and just in kind of the most perfect encapsulated form. And I have to say, it's also one of the most pre-Cody films that I have seen because it's just, it's all about like the the, the sex of it all. And it's very brazen (laughs) with it in so many ways. There, There was one particular moment, like when he, when Herbert Marshall and Kay Francis first like, kiss or like have this moment and then they walk into the bedroom and the camera just lingers on the door for like a protracted right. amount of time and it's like there's no question what's happening in there that's that's very explicit <laughs> i feel like having a trademark that is a smoothness of the screen and and just like a, a point of purpose that i think i wrote in my my letterbox that the the silver screen must have never felt more silver which is mm-hmm. a line i really like because there's something about this that lifts it from the black and white and it feels almost magical. It, it does have a Lubitsch touch. There's definitely a, a magical quality to it. It has all of these kind of interesting qualities. And again, like this, this marriage of class and crass, which I, I love <laughs> from Lubitsch. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the, the, the funniest films I watched for the first time this year. Uh, an obvious and heralded gem already that uh, just, you know, it's been, not as available i guess to me anyway mm-hmm. and so when it when it came to the criterion channel i, I was all about it because i was aware of it for a long long time prior to now and uh finally i can personally champion it as well as everyone else <laughs> and i don't think i quite was so i i was really surprised and taken with it too very good yeah w- watching it together i think was a very nice experience like getting to share 
something like that, uh, particularly comedies as well. And when you have that collective experience, I think it just enhances it even more. So the only that problem was, was I, I was so mesmerized by it, I didn't want to look away from the screen. It's that kind of yeah. magnet to the eyes where every shot is so nice. And I was just really like soaking in the movie. Like I, you, you know what I mean about this I, movie. I, I, I can tell you it was it was a jovial experience for me to see because I know you were like kind of down that day anyhow. Yeah. And this and this helped lift things up even for just a little while and, and seeing your uh you know embrace of it, your total joy in, in watching it, uh it made me really happy and and it was a confirmation of the power of the movie. Movies can make things really good. I mean, they, they can make things a lot better. And sharing them also makes things significantly better, I'd say. Yeah, I'd say that. And that's also something that's going to account for here on these lists is that, um, you know, some of them are, are going to be just personal watching experiences. I can say that I, I probably watch better films, yeah. you know, than some of these here this year, but they weren't necessarily my favorite discoveries or watches. Like th this one, these ones are all going to be like personal, what, what personally resonated with me or like the experience itself, you know. Um, I, I would say my uh, nine's not as uplifting, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Here's where we start to diverge already. Uh, oh. Two films right. within... But it did make me ultimately happy. It's long car wise, fallen angels at number nine, mm. which <laughs> I, I I've been struggling with long car why. Like I I felt like I should have one that I'm I'm quite like really taken with and attached to. But I, the best I could do is a strong affection for in the mood for love before now, um, which I really enjoy. I I am not as high on uh, Chunking Express as everyone else I, seems to I be. I agree. That's that's something that we can agree with. I think. Okay. I think Chunking Express has also been like overtaken by the the film bros somewhat. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> which which again is like a, a very kind of ambiguous and innocuous statement. But you you <laughs> you people out there, you know what I mean. That it it's, was. It's been embraced to an overwhelming degree. <laughs> I think Tarantino's involvement has yes. a lot to do with the audience that, that came to kind of define what that movie was. And Definitely. they're the kind of audience that likes something, you know, uh, on Tarantino's scale. Oh, so, I, th I think it's also possibly their first exposure <laughs> to that kind of cinema. Yes. And so then it has an extra effect of that and it, and it lingers with them. And it also has that hook of the mamas and papas song <laughs> that you can't get out of your head. And uh, it's a meme too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you can't help but feel like the film is a little memed into popularity here, but that's not to say that it is floating without merit, but definitely I think it, we have an agreement that it, it doesn't hold as much. Like I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely more of an, in the mood for love kind yeah. of person. I, I love like the stuttering of the frames there and all his cinematic techniques, which for me really come to a fore in um, fallen angels, which well, you know, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. So to see someone um, from another place completely mastering that kind of technique, that kind of frenetic visual and uh, kind of movement in a crime story. So this is a multi-branching crime story with like very well-developed characters, even one being a mute. It's, it's something I'm encountering more and more in Asian cinema, which is really interesting to me because I'm not that familiar with their silent period. But as I uh, uh, go between... Um, some of their older silent films and the newer stuff, seeing how they play with sound and technique with mute characters. Um, I think there's something meditative, meditative about it too. 
like there's there's a certain thing in Asian cinema that I'm finding about uh, meditation and muteness and uh, being able to be quiet within oneself. But and this is it's like a meditation of the city too, you know, like the famous scene with the motorcycle riding through the tunnel. Yeah. Um, there, there's that the that. the image of it is the kind of like the projected thing with it. I think that's also like the poster image for yeah the, the movie. Like that, even watching it just in motion, it it hits so hard, and there are so many shots just like that. The movie never stops, and it just like moves on a dime. Like with the with the greatest finesse of maybe any movie on this list, it just has that like clinical precision that only a master could have for like an action format, and uh, it it deals with depression in an interesting ways. So that's why I'm saying not quite the uplifting movie, but but for me, it did fulfill some kind of void that I I needed filled. So. Yeah. Uh, I think it's also it's an interesting uh, and rele- uh, relevant uh, selection for a 2020 yes. list because uh, that's why it, I put it on. <laughs> infamously, uh, Wong Kar Wai has his uh, new restorations of films coming up, but he's uh, he's tweaked them quite a bit. And uh, Fallen Angels is one of the more egregious examples. <laughs> yeah, he he's relit some parts of it, and and he said it's closer to original intention. But we also think about like Death of the Artist and. Uh, maybe once the movie's out, their intentions, you know, maybe we don't worry about them. Yeah, well, like some of the things he's changed seem to be the things that endeared and charmed people to begin with. Like, you know, there's going to be the... so much left to like, though. Honestly, it's still yeah. going to be like, like I don't know. You you'll be able to say the film is ruined, <laughs> but no. uh, obviously these changes, I would say that most people are not going to be content with them or happy. No. And, and the fact that the original versions won't be getting the the restoration uh is is part of the frustration the the ongoing frustration of preservation uh efforts you know in that it's you know there's specific aspects that aren't being preserved which are the things that we aim to and so it's but but you can't preserve everything obviously you can't always keep churning out new versions while also keeping the first ones and stuff going it's it's too much effort i think there's do you feel like there's any difference between like a Star Wars process that's that's been you know historically <laughs> historically that's the the bad side of doing preservation? Um, uh, would you say there's a big difference between that and and what uh, Wong Kar Wai would like to do here? Ah, uh, no, I don't think yeah, there don't is. Think but so uh, you know, it's, it's fair. You know, what's funny is that I just watched Raiders of the Lost Ark again for last night just because I was feeling in the mood for okay. it. And I noticed a couple of CG editions that I hadn't before. I forgot that it was tampered with just in like a yeah. couple of small moments. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I don't want movies to become more video game like either. I don't want to download patches someday for for my movies, please. God, I don't yeah. want to. So, so that's uh, an unfortunate aspect. But as long as, I mean, I, I don't think that'll take away necessarily from no. Hour of the film and you know there's also like something to be said for how films existed you know 50 years ago and how different they are today oh yeah you know the the process of restoration restoration has always altered films in some aspects you know or another uh you know cleaning them up in ways that people don't always agree with that's always you know that there's different approaches to restoration but this one even with the artist's uh intent in there there's always going to be a bit of friction i'm just glad that people will see them in some form i just wish it were original form Um, we've all just been clamoring for the movies as they were and i know they've 
been damaged or in some places lost over the years. So I realize there's some things to clean up, but uh, I, I don't really want new new movies. I mean, yeah, I, I want Fallen Angels the way I just saw it, which was fucking fantastic and maybe the best convergence of a Eastern and Western style of film I've seen. Can I, I genuinely can I quote be- you on that? By the way, I don't want new movies. <laughs> I, I want to put that on my wall. I mean, I don't want these movies to be new. <laughs> right. No, I, I get what you mean, and I am I'm generally in agreement with you here. But it's it's just one of those uh, facts of you know film that we got to deal with. Uh, the facts of film podcast. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm gonna give you my number eight now, which is uh, I I think more in tune. It's got a, a tragic angle to it. It's one you haven't seen, I know, oh. so more interesting. And number eight for me is uh, the Blue Angel from 1930. The blue and that's, angel, and that's that's part of a series you've been watching. Right? Uh so, somewhat of a series, yeah, and a, a, a unconnected series, but mostly uh, forged by the partnership between director Joseph von Sternberg and actress Marlena Dietrich, who of course was discovered and you know uh, launched into fame with this film, which was the first all-talking film from Germany in 1930. And uh, it really just like it, it hit me hard like a like a truck emotionally. Uh, what about Stern- it? Well, Sternberg, I think, is a great visual artist as, as a director. He has this innate sense of expressionism that you get even into his sound films and the collaboration with uh, Dietrich. All of the American ones, which I watched this year, uh, they can be a bit of a mixed bag. They have good things but also they can sometimes be uh, underwhelming, particularly because n- narrative is not something that Sternberg is as adept with. So they can be a little meandering, but uh, the blue angel has a really great sim- simplistic, straightforward kind of like a Greek tragedy aims. And it's uh, makes great use. I think like, it's a great transition from the silent period to talkies. Uh, it employs like like in, in a great juxtaposition you see just in its leading actors with uh Emil Yannings as an uh elderly professor and he was a prominent and uh highly sought after silent film uh star who uh featured in Sternberg's earlier films as well as uh, a couple of Murnau films most famously uh The Last Laugh and then uh Dietrich of course and this was her big breakthrough film in which she's a uh, nightclub singer uh, who Yawnings uh, ends up falling for. And it's this, uh, I I think, a fascinating trajectory for it because the story is mostly visually told with uh, one very very prominent song, which gets uh, echoed usage throughout, uh, first in a very, like, loving and romantic way and then is at the it, end... uh, mamas and the papas but <laughs> <laughs> no no it's not uh it became a signature song of um dietrich uh and i can't remember the name of it because they're all listed here in their mm. german title of course okay. and i'm not, I'm not going to try and pronounce that because uh we know that goes badly but anyway uh so so the story of uh has a great visual sense to it. I think it communicates a lot through the uh, movement of the camera and it, and it uses that to express the turmoil of the characters in this relatively simple story about a professor whose, you know, love uh, ends up leading him down a, a treacherous path, which he can't, uh, in which he ultimately, you know, succumbs to. And, you know, uh, and it, the story takes that dark, tragic turn for him 
in a beautiful and mesmerizing and haunted way. Uh, the the conclusion of the film just wrecked me emotionally when watching. I was I was totally entranced by it because the first half really got me to to believe in this romance, this this uh, unconventional romance between a kind of portly professor and the stunning nightclub singer. Marlena Dietrich definitely has become one of my favorite actresses from the, the kind of golden age and such, but she really shines here, I think. And, and the film has a lofty reputation for good reason. So it was a terrific discovery for me and uh, one I would highly recommend to most anyone, really. Were, were you feeling that some of your watch wasn't going as planned? Like not all of them ended up great for you, right? Yeah, particularly those uh, later Dietrich Sternberg films. Um, it okay. was it was a rough road from there, like followed <laughs> up with Morocco afterwards, and that was pretty underwhelming. And again, like the more Sternberg films I've seen, the more I see his, his faults, his inadequacies, okay. but also like they're always interesting, I found, because his visual style and, uh, you know, focus on, on um, storytelling through that lens uh, is, is always individual and uh, I think masterful if his stories aren't always coherent or interesting. Would but, you but rather the, have uh, Chungking Express or Shanghai <laughs> Express? <laughs> I, I would take Chunking, I guess, because uh, I, I at least uh, I got that song at least. <laughs> so I haven't seen a Sternberg. Would you start with the Blue Angel? Absolutely. The Blue Angel, I think, is a great place to start. Um, I, I th- again, it's that precipice of moving into the, the sound era there. And, uh, you know, and, and it really is. It's also just a great piece of film history, I think, both on the German and American side for what it eventually led to. Uh, and so it was a great, great discovery. Um, so uh, I, I guess you're going to learn something about me finally. Um, and we've done 101 podcasts. Yes. I, I don't know if you know about me that I'm awfully fond of Seattle. I, I like you mean, where you mean I live. The, the, the city in like the, the big, like the concept. Of... Yeah. Have you heard of Seattle? Yeah, it's like it's got a big needly thing in, yeah, big. in the middle somewhere. Yeah, it has a big needle. A lot of needles, in fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Seattle. Yeah, Seattle has a lot of needles. Anyway, I like Seattle a lot, despite the needles. Um, there's something about the city that I've always been attached to. And I think it's a lot to do with like the sound and the energy of the place. Um, there's really something in the music that I've always connected to, like in a bigger way. Um, there, I feel like Seattle has a certain sound because every genre of music before we got to the 90s was very much like a, it was leading to something. And I think we got there in Seattle. I feel like they got to like the, the ultimate end of where rock was going anyway. They combined all of the things that came before and they made it into like a discordant mess of like a new alternative. Like they fused the the past of like blues and, you know, um, all that stuff. Uh, so I think atypical for like a list like this, my number eight is a Pearl Jam 20. Um, <laughs> a very strange uh, thing to put like a documentary about a band on a list like this, but it's one that has impacted me almost the most at the end of the year. Um, it got me to go get a guitar. So, uh, I mean, it's any motivating. movie that could get you into a hobby, I think is ultimately hugely significant in your life. Um, it's not like I haven't been a Pearl Jam fan before it my entire life. Um, 
everything's kind of leading me toward a path where I should watch this documentary. So I have done it. You know, I know exactly what you mean in terms of how like a music documentary can really like affect you and drive you to do that. I had a similar experience, uh, not this last year, but the one prior where I watched uh, Peter Bogdanovich's uh, Tom Petty documentary, which is like mm-hmm. four hours, but uh, it was it was entrancing. It was, it was really like it took me and I'm like uh, and, and I went and got a guitar as well and subsequently never really played it. You didn't? <laughs> so, no, I tried, but I'm like this is hard. This is like, not, not at all easy to figure out and my hands hurt. <laughs> so I, I quickly gave up on my dream of becoming a rock star after watching that documentary. But I, I understand entirely that feeling that it can give you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think I was seeing it how uh, when Pearl Jam would talk about how they would play like the, like the Tom Petty or the Neil Young songs that they they become a part of, like in the rock history, they they become more combined with those guys than like the Nirvanas in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were more a continuation of that Tom Petty lineage, I believe, or um, you know, like the the songwriter with the guitar, uh, just making cool stuff, and they weren't going to become uh, so bogged down with the drugs and all the needles around here. Um, I I feel like something about Cameron Crowe I've really connected to this year. I hadn't seen Almost Famous until this summer. Uh, so I'd say like partially this is a spot in my list for my growing affection. Um, embarrassingly, I feel like I will blush that uh, Singles is one of my favorite romantic comedies. Uh, <laughs> it has all of my favorite music on one soundtrack. I mean, we're looking at like Mother Love Bone and, you know, like all the guys from Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, uh, just the whole scene that I like, Mud Honey. Um, every band that I like is on that soundtrack. So I, I've been watching more Cameron Crowe, I mean, um, which I didn't expect to be my 2020 takeaway that, that he'd become a, a director of growing affection, but the way that he frames Seattle and he was here, like hanging out with these bands during their rise to fame. So nobody was really closer to Pearl Jam. I mean, he's good friends with all of them. Um, I just watched a, we bought a zoo from him, which is a, a dumb romantic comedy as well. <laughs> with Scarlett Johansson in it. Uh, so, of course, I'd watch it. But one of the guys is, like, named McCready. I mean, he, he loves Pearl Jam. He's naming characters after them. Um, I, my time in Seattle, I was I was good friends with a producer for Pearl Jam for a long time. So uh, I, we'd hang out, play pool before he died. Uh, sadly, passed away a few years ago. But, uh, I, I mean, I have a connection to this music. It's, like, deep in my soul. So to watch it on the screen is always impactful to me. Right. Um, it makes perfect sense for you to have as your entry there, right. but uh, I certainly would not have expected it. No, I didn't think about it. Like, that's the thing. It didn't come across. If you gave me like a list of things and there was a Pearl Jam documentary, I'd be like, oh yeah, that was definitely one of Calvin's favorite. Right. Um, <laughs> if I listed them, you'd know who it was from. Um, yeah. Cam- but... And Cameron Crowe sounds about right. Uh, I'll be interested to see him going forward. Again, unexpected director to really attach to, but you know, yeah, makes I... sense. <laughs> I, it, it ultimately makes a lot of sense for where he's coming from being the same place as me. I mean, he's not mm-hmm. like from Seattle, but I feel like he really calls it his home in his movies. I mean, I got I, a, like... I got a, he's got a book of conversations with Billy Wilder that I want to read. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. He was I uh, somewhat close to him in his later years. So okay. definitely something to, to check out. Um, yeah. You could really see it. And we got to say <laughs> <laughs> really great lineage there. 
Yep, makes I, I see the perfect trajectory from Sunset Boulevard <laughs> to We Bought a Zoo. Almost makes. famous, really fucking fantastic uh, rock movie too. Um, the tiny tiny dancer scene. Hold yeah. me closer, tiny dancers. It's great stuff. All right. Uh, well, speaking of uh, singing and musical aspects and stuff, I'll move on to my number seven. So again, we, we, we do have a little bit of flow here. I get it. Uh, my number seven is uh, Stormy Weather from 1946. And uh, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. <laughs> it's it's a um, an all-black extravaganza musical from uh, 20th Century Fox starring Lena Horne, Bill Bojangles Robinson, and a bunch of other major, you know, personalities from the jazz age here, like uh, Fats Waller and Cab Calloway. The Nicholas Brothers are like give a terrific tour de force, amazing uh, duet tap dance sequence at the end. The film itself is like really simple. It's like it's about as simple as a plot can be. Uh, Bill Robinson is like reflecting on his career you know, kind of, you know, from the bottom all the way up to the top and stuff. And it's got these musical interludes, you know, like, like kind of just throughout, like, you know, singing around the piano and stuff. And like he, these different brushes he has with Lena Horne uh, throughout. And then up until the end, Cab Calloway pulls up, you know, to his house and it's like, hey, you know, we're putting on this big musical show. Come join us for this and everything. And they're like, okay. And it's just this bam, huge extravaganza for like the last... 20 minutes lena horn sings the famous song and there's this beautiful like ballet dreamy sequence in the midst of it that happens cab calloway you know fires off this exciting electric song and he's got this booming personality that just comes through and is like extremely loud zoot suit and thing he's, he's got his whole get up everything just like you imagine cab calloway and he's uh, incredible in it and then the it, it really caps off with like the the nicholas brothers doing this insane just this fucking insane choreographed sequence where they're like tap dancing around hopping across like the bandstands they do these like leaping splits and landing on it like me just describing it with this enthusiasm isn't even doing enough. Uh, you, like it's really, really something to see. Uh, and and despite how like simplistic it is narratively, even like filmmaking wise or anything you want to say about it, like it's just this intense like display of black talents, you know, in a time which really didn't get a chance to exhibit it, and this you know had to be filtered through this you know catering lens. Uh, and mm. and it really is just like again a. a tour de force of like the the talents that were there uh that weren't always given the the best of exposure so to have even even in these filtered you know examples to see them them come through it's just absolutely astounding and you know blows most everything else contemporary wise out of the water there i feel like you're really selling me on it i i'd like to see <laughs> it as well i i love the exuberance of old dance numbers they look so recklessly like they look almost dangerous the way people dance in the old movies um, yeah oh uh, and they were in some like uh bill bill robinson uh you know he he was very he, he was quite old at this point but still you know uh able to kind of slip into the character all right uh and his his tap technique was a huge influence on fred astaire in particular oh wow uh the the blackface number that uh, exists in swing time which of course is a uh, fantastic despite its problems um is is inspired it's it's uh by bojangles ronson that's that's an ode to him that makes a little more sense um yeah <laughs> i mean, given that context um well we think of blackface as always uh 
like the initial point would be racist and probably it's still racist i mean it is uh, (laughs) yeah but but you uh, can see where he's coming from in that way (laughs) yeah uh is is uh my fiance likes to put it like it's kind of just like what what the expectation was that was like an aspect of the art form like minstrelsy was not seen as like a a mockery so much as another part of the performance uh if you want to try and wrap your head around the reasoning of it which I mean, at this point, I don't think you really have to, but, you know, it's it, it's not comfortable to watch necessarily, but that doesn't take away from some of the artistry that you see still through that. But um, at the same time, you could also just watch something like Stormy Weather, which is a, an exuberant abundance of, you know, black talent in, in and of itself there. You don't need to see, you know, the watered down grotesque uh, homages. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna yeah, watch if, that eventually. I, if you can find it, it's it. it's again it's a little tougher one to track down, but uh God is it worth it. Okay. <laughs> uh, just one of the most like enlivening film experiences I had of the year. I could I could watch that film so many times. I'm always go- glad to get those wrecks because I don't want to watch all the musicals and find the good stuff. I just want to watch the ones you like. So. I'll I'll do it for you. I'll give you all the yeah. the good musical movies. <laughs> you could you could suffer through just some of the song and dance numbers that don't have a purpose and get to these uh, really <laughs> extraordinary sounding ones. So. Yeah, it sounds incredible to me. I want to see it. Definitely, definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, really no flow at this point to our list uh, as I get into number seven. Um. I've I've experienced a lot of well not personally but I've experienced watching a lot of body horror this last year. Um, uh, I think it's a good year for it as uh, as we've had COVID and everything coming into the country kind of like sweeping like what we thought of. Well, it feels like there's an invisible villain and it's it's fucking us all up. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it really feels like there's something out there that's completely damaging. We don't know the long term effects. Uh, uh, it, it was an interesting year to invest in a lot of body horror. Like I started with like early 2020 titles, like a swallow, which is about like swallowing tax. And I right. watched a bunch of short films about it at festivals. I think, I think five or six. Um, one of them was a, a Brandon Cronenberg film, yep. which made me realize that, Oh, he is such a great director. He's going to be at least as good as dad. And then later on in the year, I saw Possessor just mind blown. I, I couldn't believe how like valuable that was. I mean, this year it's it's my second favorite film of the year. It's not even going on this list. And oh, okay. uh, what I'm putting here, <laughs> what I'm putting here is The Fly, which we experienced. Uh, <laughs> yeah, The Fly is. Uh, I I think. Yeah, definitely. Did we talk about, I think we podcasted that one. We yeah. did do the podcast on the fly. Yeah. So I guess we'll keep this one relatively short, but it we is can. just like, it's impressive how fantastic it is, despite how how seemingly like commercial, I think it is. that's what always impressed me about <laughs> yeah. it, is that like, it's the most like, I think accessible, like straightforward, digestible movie from Cronenberg's career. And still like, it's just this magnificent and, you know, all encompassing and, uh, totally um you know just just singular example of body horror and it just what... blew me away i mean yeah. it's such a great example of doing practical effects work like uh with meaning uh this is really a shared spot for father and son <laughs> if i'm being <laughs> honest this is just a spot that says cronenberg just like i've had uh, <laughs> i've had spots that are just director um uh, so this is really just a spot for Cronenberg as I've went through a couple of his other works and I've seen his film, his son's uh, short films uh, and his uh, feature debut, which was just mind blowing to me. 
that a family could even have that much talent toward one specific angle of one genre. I mean, incredible family. And uh, The Fly, I think, is really the most definitive example of like a straightforward one. I have a lot of affection for Crash, which I think I I must have saw the first time this year. Um, also blew me away. So uh, mm-hmm. this is a spot for those movies, really. Possessor, Crash, and uh, The Fly. It's a, it's a good one kind of encompass there. Uh, I guess if I had watched The Fly the first time this year, it would probably also make my list. But because <laughs> sure. it is a, such a fantastic uh, film, and I'm glad we covered it on the, the podcast. And certainly we'll cover more Cronenbergs going forward. If you, yeah, if you want If you want to get into body horror... Fly is a great place to start. I would agree. And then if you want to see like the new style, Possessor is just such a, it's such a perfect follow-up. I mean, you couldn't want more from someone carrying the torch. And and if you're feeling horny and want to get disgusted at the same time, I guess uh, Crash is a good way to go. Crash is always the right way to go. <laughs> All right. Uh, so my number six, um, not really grotesque or body horror-ish in any way. Uh, I think I'm kind of more like, if, if you look at my list, you can see this kind of consistent theme of like, entertaining fun adventurous kind of movies are the rest all musicals no 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 okay (laughs) i'll I'll have a little bit more uh but but generally like these were films that i had just like a great time with that i don't know that appeals to me i don't always like to feel miserable watching movies but you know uh this one was probably one of the more most jubilant films i think which was uh a, a surprise and a delight and that was uh the fabulous baron munchausen from 1962 which i I feel like I've watched, but I, I can't quite remember. The It was, ah, oh, it's it's so great and fun and entertaining, which was a surprise for me coming off of the other Carl Zeman film I had watched earlier this oh, year, no. which was Invention for Destruction, which was a beautiful, like, homage to, like, Jules Verne-style stories with some, like, 1950s, uh, you know, Kind of, kind of social commentary on it. it had this great like incorporation of stop motion and uh, this this like wood paneling like technique into it, but it was just dreadfully boring. Like the characters were so vapid and, and there's like nothing there, and it was like miserable to watch, but so beautiful visually. <laughs> and fortunately, the fabulous Baron Munchausen just like wiped away all of that boring shit and just gave me like a great, like hilarious central character. This absolute sense of whimsy and adventure to it with all of that visual inspiredness still you know kept and even expanded upon in so many ways uh it plays with color in a great variety of ways it has all that beautiful stop motion the hand-drawn aspects to it all incorporated in i love just the like the ridiculousness of the the opening sequence in which basically like it's this great opening where you have like the whole history of man kind of play out from like the the bacterial amoeba <laughs> stages kind of you see it all gr- you know grow in this very quick sequence until we get to man landing on the moon okay which it, at this point when the film was made hadn't actually happened yet which is inter- always interesting and and when he gets there the first man on the moon uh he discovers uh cyrano de bergerac and baron munchausen and uh, Jules Verne's spaceship right. have all beat him there <laughs> and they're just hanging out on the moon together and uh, the Baron thinks that he he must be like an inhabitant of the moon so he takes him back down to earth to show him what the world is like there through his eyes and it's just this great globetrotting adventure all over the place they save a princess at one point they they have this big battle with all these ships and everything 
you know, famously, uh, Baron Munchausen, he, he fly, he rides on a cannonball from one side of the, to the other <laughs> to kind of scope out the enemy. And it's, it's hilarious and great. It's got a lot of great gags to it. Uh, just kind of all in there. They ride it, they get eaten by a fish at one point. They ride around in his belly. Uh, it's, it's so much fun. Um, I, I, I hardly, <laughs> I hardly remember, but like, the fragment memory I have is like it's like the early French like illusionist filmmakers like the oh, George yeah. Millet. Yeah, it the... definitely channels a lot of George Melies, okay, you know. Uh, and, and again, I've definitely visuals. seen it then. And it has it has the same visual style, the attention to detail, the backgrounds and such, the the use of color and tinting and all that, but all used to really like project this hilarious and you know uh, adventurous story uh, with this kind of pompous but you know totally legendary character that i just i absolutely fell in love with the movie and i thought it was uh such such a ride um i'm i'm glad it made the list yours your seems pretty diverse so far and yeah has some and good examples to to i guess you know make you know i i got a little bit of variety there i got uh, two german films and a czech movie now so it's not just the straight american hollywood stuff that you probably expect from me <laughs> i noticed you watched like 30 german movies this year that's good you're getting uh... i like i like the the weimar films for sure <laughs> <laughs> um so i guess my next one is also a little bit different for a list like this not something i'd usually either see or put in one um it feels like a lot of things have been canceled the last year and a lot of our events that we would have taken for granted either didn't happen or uh, just didn't take place at all. I, they were either moved online or, or non-existent. So um, we're, we're, we're very lucky that our hobby like circulates around something that we could have even without um, really going anywhere that we could still watch movies. Anyhow. Uh, mm -hmm. I think, uh, well, one of the big things that was meant to happen last year was uh, the Tokyo Olympics um i had a tokyo olympiad at number six which is a stunning olympic documentary uh, i kind of got into a few of those i had a small phase with them with what's on the uh what's on criterion and this one it's the details to how everything is shot um and the way that it focuses in on not the action of the sports but something about the uh like the athlete as an actor um you're looking at the athlete as like the stage performance on the biggest stage in the world. And uh, I feel like it supplies the stage as though it were theater. I mean, there's so much drama and it will focus in on like the tension of their muscles or something while they're uh, springing over a board. You might not even see the result, but then you see like the, you see the lineup of who won. Um, it's very dramatic and it created a lot of conventions that we use for um, the way we shoot sports now. Um, I know it's it's so typical like we've seen so much sports in our life that we're um we're so used to like the formula for how things are shot but to look back at like some of the early ones on criterion these olympic films you you find out like where all these angles came from how we highlight different players like uh how we derive empathy from you know uh these close-up shots and where we focus on the audience like there's a scene there's little scenes that stuck with me, like children during the national anthems, um, the way people are marching. Uh, there's one shot where it focuses in on a guy with a lot of neck fat that stuck with me. <laughs> and it kept focusing in closer on his neck fat. And he was just in the audience. And he looked like a duck. And I'll never forget <laughs> that shot. There's something about it. Um, 
there's something about the weirdness of the Olympics too, and that it's not ever well you're always commissioned to make one of these. So there's always some like nationalistic identity to them. Um, and for the Tokyo Olympiad, I feel like it, it represented something so much more empathetic than the other ones I've seen, certainly more than the German one I saw from their, um, their famous Nazi docu- from, documentary yeah, the, maker. The, the Lenny Riefenstahl one. Yeah. Which I also greatly enjoyed. And um, it was, it's hard to greatly enjoy something like that. I couldn't put that on my list uh, morally, but um, I think representing that within this uh, this realm of the Criterion Olympic series is just incredible to have access to. Like, I that's just an insane just, thing. Just as a historical document, I think yeah. that's a, an important thing to to continue to have. But also, like you said, to see just just this perspective of like the the human body, how it functions, the the total miracle that it is in terms of like athletic performance. And you see it on full display there. And uh, often, you know, the, the Olympics is the best arena in which to capture that. I think there's, I'm, I'm somewhat against like the, the corporate part of the Olympics, how they come together and how it's run. I think that's all probably bullshit, but uh, mm-hmm. there's, and I think nationalism obviously is bullshit, but there's something about the Olympics where it does represent the best of us. Um, and it does represent people coming together for something we've we've had it during significant wars and I mean going back in history it's like you know it's the start of some really significant sports and uh, it it goes into like the gladiatorial part of like the origin of wrestling and you know like which is like the origin of sports so uh, I mean really historical context is important having these films on Criterion is amazing I don't even know how how we've they've come across that and like that's such a striking deal. I, I don't think anyone else is doing that kind of work. So that's right. amazing. It's another again. It's a like we kind of touched on it earlier in terms of restoration. This is an important part of film that often we overlook because narrative has become the predominant form. Right. But that that documentary aspect, and particularly like the documentary uh, in such a seemingly, you know. Uh, normal event uh, such as this you know so a regular recurring thing you don't think of it as, as something important to preserve but really it is if just as much if not more than the stories we've we've chosen to tell over time that have made a cultural impact and i haven't seen any more of connie chikawa i believe his name is <laughs> uh, our friend pavlos will check my pronunciation <laughs> later connie yeah. chikawa we're going to go with um i haven't seen more of his but i was so impressed them really looking forward to his work yeah that's a i think an exciting and probably unexpected entry on your list here so i'm glad that <laughs> really is have that. and uh we might not have had olympics but i feel like we've had a lot of events that make us look at these moments with more compassion for what they really meant to us so. I, I think surviving the year was a large enough event to qualify yes. in and of itself <laughs> that was an olympics uh, I was going to say we're halfway through our list. Do you want to uh, take a break? Come back? Uh, yeah. Can we take five five minutes here? Yeah. Yeah. Let's come back in five minutes. Bobby running out of time. All the echoes in my mind cry.
another uh, segment of the Bean Dad and the Classic Cinema Tour. <laughs> it's a better name, actually, than what we currently got. We could switch. Succinct. Yeah. <laughs> new year, new us. <laughs> um, yeah. We we're designed for aesthetic pleasure. <laughs> All right, so we got a uh, top five for our watches are 2020 still to go here. So uh, let's uh, jump right into top, it. Top I five have... watches. I have, I have a Swatch, um, Apple Watch, <laughs> and number four, um, an old All grandfather right. clock. I... That's not really a watch unless you're are you, are you strapping an entire grandfather clock to your wrist? Like f- flavor flav, but I'm taking it to another level. <laughs> I'm bringing the whole grandfather with me. All right. Well, uh, speaking of uh, grandfathers, I have uh, the the grandfather of all epic films. I think for my number five here. Oh wow! Uh, I have a few guesses, but I don't exactly. Yeah. This this was probably my favorite viewing experience of the year. Oh wow! Uh, the, the most significant watch I think that I did. I decided to take all this downtime with COVID and knock out something gargantuan and that okay. is uh sergey vonderchuk's uh 1966 adaptation of war and peace <laughs> which was uh as brilliant and epic and ex- like extremely grand in scope as i had been led to believe uh it it really was just this absolute monstrously sized war film uh and at over seven hours at length, it's also the longest thing I've done in one sitting. <laughs> hmm. uh, I just I cleared out an entire day to watch it. And I woke up and immediately just sat on the couch, got like my breakfast ready and just started and went in. I had food delivered and, you know, we had like 10 minute breaks in between each of the four parts. Uh, which and, and you know watching it one sitting I think was brilliant, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everyone. The film wasn't even released in in one part. It was, How released, was it released. It was released in four parts over the course of two years. So uh, you really don't have to sit down <laughs> and do it in one setting. But I I felt like I benefited greatly from doing so. Uh, I think that's part of your pride in the process too. Ab- absolutely, part of watching it was literally just the bragging rights to say that I sat down and watched War and Peace in one sitting. That was in fact. I think that's what you mostly got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it really was this this stunning, beautiful, and uh, artistically innovative uh, film. I felt as well. It wasn't just like watching it from a pure like spectacle sake. It really was was like this incredible vision of like like the cinematography was absolutely stunning and the way the camera was used and implemented it wasn't just like look at all this giant shit happening on screen okay but really and like the battle sequences were just so incredibly well choreographed the, i love you know in, in some of the trailers you see for it which by the way the new restoration that you can get on the the criterion release is stunning absolutely mesmerizing like uh, trying to dig up pictures pre-restoration like i just feel like it doesn't do the film nearly as great a justice it really is this titanic behemoth of of a film and the way the camera careens around it's like it has like this god's eye view of everything but also will sometimes switch to this you know single perspective as well to put you right in the midst of everything and also just, you know, War and Peace is a great story to begin with, you know, so like, it's not like it's just Titanic battle sequences. It really is this great sprawling portrait that I feel like, as so few films do, captures the inhumanity and horror of war. Uh, 
Yeah. I'm betting, I'm, I'm going to guess that you've got a film of similar merit on your list. Um, but th- this one really did it for me, particularly in the last sequence where you get to the burning of, of Moscow. And like the whole film, like the whole screen is just covered in this inferno and it's brilliant and beautiful. And uh, I, would, I would highly recommend it to anyone um, just because it's such a master of craft and, and visual grandeur. I, I really have not seen another film as grandiose and you know large and uh ambitious as this <laughs> i i know there are a few that are legendary and it's one of those like showa that are, that like comes up on everyone's list like oh this is like a masterpiece of of extended filmmaking yeah and now really- that we're in like uh, directors making like long eight episode shows i feel like we might come back to someone eventually doing something like this again one of the interesting things, of course, is that it was made as like a direct retort to the Hollywood version of War and Peace, which itself was also, you know, grand and epic. You know, it was like a four hour film from King Vidor. Yeah. And it had all the spectacle. And and so the Soviet Union was basically just like they gave all of the resources to Bunderchuk and said, make it as, as big and grand as possible. Like, here is all of the army. Here is all of the money do it <laughs> and I was, they did i was just watching happy new year charlie brown um <laughs> as an so, aside solid transition solid he, transition he goes into uh the library and asks the teacher he has to write a book report on war and peace actually and he asks the teacher if there are any films based on it and they say no um, <laughs> i feel like i don't know if the, he's discounting it or it's like adults are always lying um i don't know which kind of thing it is hold, hold on how do the adults tell him anything in charlie brown like i was under the impression that they just make inaudible noises i think he says that they said there were no film versions oh uh, okay okay so he conveys it for them <laughs> got it but now d- definitely check it out uh if you can find seven hours just to sit down and do it i don't think i can I, i've had a couple <laughs> false starts with it where it was totally elaborate and gorgeous um i i want to find time but i might split it honestly i, I that's don't think fine I do the it's, whole it, thing if you if if that's how you have to do it totally even in screenings they uh like when they did this new restoration they screened it over a couple of days which which is weird for me to try and imagine to split up it because the story is you know a, a singular experience so to watch it like 12 hours apart or whatever seems very very odd to me <laughs> absolutely um i i'll try to get to it this year we'll see um i'm sure i could do it separated at least if well if you do let me know about it <laughs> i don't know if we'll podcast about it but maybe <laughs> well that's my question do you feel like you'll ever watch it again i want to uh the, the practicality the practicality of doing so is another matter but i, right. I would definitely want to uh it's also a film like i've also considered i'm like maybe this would also be a good background movie just to throw on at like a party or something sure i could see what from what i've seen that that at least the beginning would be i mean the this it's got war in all but like one section of it like part two has like no war in it and that was like my biggest issue with it is that like for not enough war for you (laughs) an hour and a half of the movie it you know it's just like ballroom dance stuff which is also like almost as grand as the war stuff itself but like i could have used a little bit more like balance in the stories just in the in the one section like otherwise like, or, every uh, other section was perfect our exclusive american review not uh, too much <laughs> not peace enough <laughs> not enough too war. much peace not enough war 
You should call it peace and war if you want to do that <laughs> bullshit for a whole section. Let's be honest. All right, why don't you give me your number five then? So, um, <laughs> something you may not know about me, I really like the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> uh, is that where Seattle is? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, yes. Um, and it's, I think, my only 2020 film on this countdown, possibly, other than, the, than that, aside for a possessor. So uh, we're at number five with the... Uh, I've been watching a lot more women-directed films, especially this year. Um, and I've, I've seen that 17% of the films directed this year are by women, which is a astounding jump up from, I think it was like 10 or 11, 12% the last few years. It keeps rising incrementally. And then the last year... Uh, we started talking about like um, those like contract writers at the Oscars. And then suddenly women were like involved at every stage of productions in a really beautiful way. Like half the films I saw this year, at least not all by women directors, but most of them women subjects. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of films the last year that are about men in a meaningful way. Um, uh, they're against men or they're about women. And it's been interesting shift in dynamic. Um, but this one's about men, directed by a woman. <laughs> it's uh, First Cow, uh, Kelly Reichardt's. You, you've been talking about it. So unlike last year, this is a film you heralded early on as, <laughs> as your number one. It wasn't going to yeah. go anywhere. And uh, this was like pre-lockdowns, everything and whatnot. So it turned March, out... It turned, yeah. It turned out to be correct that it may, ended up being your favorite film from the year, which is a great turnaround from High Life last year. <laughs> um, High Life made a big impression uh, another woman directed <laughs> film by the way that that's left a, a huge impact on my life i just keep thinking about high life um a first cow well for one it's a western and two it's the it's the best woman directed western i've ever seen i mean um there's so much patience and grace with how she treats her characters uh men they they seem to be in a gay relationship but also it's just built of compassion we never allow men to just be close without implying their sexuality so for them to just be bakery bros who go and steal milk from a cow and then that's uh it's like the beginning of commerce in oregon um She's not a Pacific Northwest native by birth. Um, she's from Florida, but I think a lot of our filmmakers we find from the area are from other parts. Um, and I think the Northwest represents a lot like within the Asian community. So around the time that uh, COVID was coming in, this was coming out and it it's about a Chinese immigrant and um, his relationship with a, a guy who uh, leads people down the right trails in the uh, Pacific Northwest. So it's about defining the Oregon Trail in a way and uh, coming to create capitalism in the Pacific Northwest in a Western setting. Um, it begins with the, it starts with dead bodies and then you you find their story as you go along. It seems like she's making allusions to Wendy and Lucy, um, another early film of hers with a dog and a girl finding the bodies. So you have this idea that the Kelly Reichardt universe in Oregon is expanding in some way that there's like the old joy trails and maybe these guys hiked along it. And here's another hiking movie but with allusions to her Western of Meek's cutoff. So um, in some way it feels expansive and commenting on everything she's made where it all culminates. Um, fascinating note for me, there's no cow in the book it's based on. <laughs> the <laughs> cow is an invention of the movie. That's funny and, and a little ridiculous. Yeah. How does it work then? <laughs> I mean, the cow just becomes a symbolic thing. It becomes uh, part of their production of their uh, bakery products. And of course, they, they need to get the milk from that. And 
um, they start making oily cakes and <laughs> uh, selling them to delighted uh, uh, patrons of, of their new business. So they're really the first business in this new territory. And uh, they keep going and stealing the milk from this cow. So it becomes a significant point of danger for them. Um, I think it gives the movie a conflict too, which is nice. Uh, it doesn't have much conflict. That's fine. I don't think all movies have to have uh, conflicts. Your enthusiasm for it is definitely rung throughout the entire year, and you're not the only one I've seen champion its praises. And so to also to have a 2020 film make the list, I think, is uh, important. Yeah. You know, because even though a lot of us, uh, mostly me, didn't watch a whole lot from this year, that doesn't mean that they weren't out there or unavailable. Um, you know, just different it, ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just because they weren't listed on theater marquees anymore doesn't mean that, you know, they weren't still uh, presented to us out there available. And so uh, something like this, you know, I think is, is definitely an important one to uh, uh, chase after and to to reaffirm that, yeah, you know, great movies did really come out this year still. And, you know, you should make sure to check it out still. Yeah, I mean, an amazing Western came out in 2020. I mean, what more do I need? One about the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> That's a Western no, no about less. compassion and and it's slow cinema. Although some of my friends say it's too slow and I'm like, motherfucker, I just watched Gene Daleman. I, I don't want to hear about <laughs> how slow First Cow is. I watched a French woman do chores for four hours. I don't need to know about like, uh, this isn't as, that slow of a movie. I think it's the right rate for like what's going on in the in the film. Um, just full of compassion and love. I, I love this movie. I'm so glad to, to hear that. Definitely pushing me every time you mention it to check it out uh i promise i'll get to it eventually uh, i'd like to watch it together actually that would be maybe maybe we'll do that let's uh let's plan to do that sometime get together and and yeah watch that. sure all right i'm gonna give you my number four now uh i'm gonna hop back on to the musical train here okay because i love them and this one was just a total utter surprise i wasn't i wasn't ready for it um <laughs> but i was absolutely blown away by it and that was uh footlight parade from 1933 so this has come up a few times yeah uh i i want to write about it uh i just i I need to find the words because it's a film that that flabbergasted me in in many ways throughout uh (laughs) i i had had experience with busby berkeley before through 42nd street which was like the big film that was also from 1933 uh, along with Gold Diggers in 1933 that year, that really like revived the musical after the kind of craze with talkies and everything faded out from like the late 1920s there. And so things started to come back into focus. And then Busby Berkeley hits the scene and just like smashes everything open with these extravagant artistic musicals that have a very pre-code quality to them as well. Like uh, famously, Gold Diggers also has a lot of, you know, uh, commentary infused with like the, the Great Depression going on. And that also exists in Footlight Parade uh, as this kind of interesting capsule of uh, a part of film history that we don't think about and because the whole film is about this group of like you know uh d- like dance chore- choreographers and everyone getting together and they put on what uh what are called prologues which were like musical entertainment shows that happened before the movies and they were kind of dying out at this point so this like really interesting kind of niche last ode to them it's just really brilliant and fantastic. And you've got some really great talents at the center of it all. James Cagney, who we really think of as the, the prototypical gangster. Uh, you know, he started off at vaudeville first and he had a okay. singing and dancing, you know, 
talents and footlight parade gets to display them i think better than any other film and then you also have like the berkeley mainstays of joan blondell and ruby keeler and dick powell who were in all those other movies from the same year but i think all of their their manic energy really adds to this great film which is uh hilarious and you know uh energetic throughout and and then like the last 30 minutes of the movie is just an onslaught of extravagant oversized musical sequences that uh just kind of build in terms of their scope and uh they don't make sense in the context of the movie the second number uh is a whole number in a olympic sized swimming pool with all of the dancers doing the typical busby berkeley choreography where they're getting into like kaleidoscopic images or you're like moving through like all of the dancers legs or whatever and then you gotta stop for a second and say isn't this supposed to be happening in front of a movie theater screen right now? Like that's what the movie's about, right? Where did this pool come from? How does this work? And and the movie doesn't care. It's just going to keep barreling forward and being more ridiculous as it goes on and on. Like by the time it hit the waterfall, I'm like this is <laughs> insane and I love all of it. But the movie said, no, no, there's more. We're going to end with this giant, sequence of uh, all these dancers in army uniforms getting together in, in an opium den essentially which is its own weird brazen like racistness that the film doesn't care about which I kind of admire just how bold it is <laughs> in this weird way like it just okay. goes for it and and it just ramps up into full like patriotic fervor by the end <laughs> and, and I was just like flabbergasted keep going like they form into the shape of an eagle with like the, the olive branches in it and then they they get into a square and they flip over all these cards and fdr's face is, is there and i'm like what the fuck is happening and it's amazing it's, it's genuinely amazing and i i just want to write about the audacity of it because it is just it's so bold i forgot to mention like earlier in the film they have a cat's song number they do cats oh, the whole song thing was about cats Oh, that sounds just fantastic. I, I'm it adding is, a lot it, to my watch list today. It's it, and it really was like like this was such a last minute decision. Like I only knew about the film because it. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. It used to feature as a, a early part of the Great Movie Ride in the Disney Park. No, I it's didn't. Like a know. And I was like, all I knew about the movie, and it happened to be uh, like leaving Criterion one day. So I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll check this out and see. And at the end, I'm just like, what the fuck? It just keeps getting bigger and bolder, and it's it, it's like it's a I, I just love how no matter what the movie is like the movie could be anything and it's just a conduit so that Berkeley can eventually get up there and stage these eccentric over the top artistic dance sequences that can only be you know rendered through film and it doesn't matter what anything came before was it's just like it's just a ride to get to Berkeley to do his thing and it's it's really incredible and Footlight Parade was far and away my my favorite of all the ones that I saw there okay um uh, should we just keep moving this thing? Yeah, yeah, you go ahead now. Uh, well, the I mean, the rest are pretty impactful, um, year-changing uh, films, I'd say. Especially um, number four here, I have um, Blue West, Boo Nails, um, Unchian Andalou, which I <laughs> just dramatically shaped my year. Are you laughing because it's funny to put a short on this far? No, I, I, is, is that how you say his name? I believe so. Louis Louis Boonwell is how I would say it. Well, great. Okay. I'll, I'll let you do that. I thought okay. it was. I, I also thought it was funny because I remember before you knew about the film, you you mentioned a long time ago something about like, like not liking 
something with eyes and bothering yes, yes. and and so i sent you the the gif just to bug you and i don't think you knew it was from that necessarily but this is before you watched it and I, the gif and, yes yeah and i thought it was very funny that it ended up that, that now the, the film has impacted you so much i have a big problem uh with anyone touching eyes in movies i I don't and, like and, going to the eye doctor. I, and this is probably the most famous instance of something horrific somebody doing with the eye. You know, it's the it's the famous shot of the razor blade being drug over the, the girl's yeah. eye. <laughs> That's There's uh, I like movies to either avoid things I'm uncomfortable with or tackle them completely. I need uh, the, a film to go throws all you, in. It throws you headlong into eye slashing. <laughs> I think it gets just narrowed down to that one thing too often because... Yeah, I mean, for me, it's Boone well, and then we have uh, Salvador Dali too. I mean, yeah, like yeah, they're, part of yeah, like they're teaming up to create like this surrealist expression so early on. Uh, it showed me what cinema could possibly do. It's one of the films that makes me want to create something. Um, it's so concise, but it explores so much of dreams and just uncomfortable human emotions and reactions. So. Uh, my fear of eyes and then just getting one like just slid open is also it has a big impact on me and uh, it feels like my skin's crawling for half this movie which isn't an impact I get for like many 20s movies I, I feel like so many of them are so nice and uh, uh, well intentioned I would say um, a lot of the early films are uh, very happy generally I mean they're they may have darkness once we get past World War II but there's a there's such an optimism in the early films to, to have something that's all out surrealism, but that's clearly a big mark on the influences. I'd say it influenced all the people that have influenced me. So that's a, that's a big mark with Boone. Well, that I reached this year is that uh, I also want to include it just because I watched so many of his and right. that it was the best one of those. Um, that's interesting. I think it's, is it his first film? I don't know where it where it went. I think it's very early on. I think he might have had a it, short it is or his, two. It's okay. his first film. That's I incredible. Was, I believe it was Dolly's first as well. Uh, just to have that that team as well is so interesting. And again, like very indicative of their their later styles and whatnot. Yeah. Well, is obviously uh, a huge you know kind of a dreamy filmmaker, and he has a very interesting career. Uh, surrealist is, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, it's like. A lot of his films are like surrealistic vignettes of uncomfortable dreamscapes anyway. I also loved this year, The Exterminating Angel, just this idea of the rich showing up and being unable to leave a dinner party and uh, mocking the rich so openly and uh, out in the open, I think for movies, which are, which are generally made and funded by the rich. I, I love someone who's really going to stick it to them and, and, really explore how uncomfortable they can make this for them mm -hmm. yeah, um, good. yeah a fast favorite for me i mean moonwell uh who i hope i pronunciate right the whole time right it's also uh, interesting i guess to note that today was the release of the three package moonwell films from uh, oh, Criterion. okay i'm gonna pick those up soon yeah all right uh number three then right yeah all right uh this one should be easy real quick uh Mine was uh, A Place in the Sun from 1951, which we talked about on the podcast after my initial grand enthusiasm for it. Uh, and and I think you you obviously had a great appreciation, if not quite the same level of fervor for me, obviously uh, hindered by your... Court uh, scenes. Yeah, yeah, your you know, disposition to court scenes there. But I, I absolutely loved it still. Um, 
and and it, it really did like enrapture me and it's uh suggestiveness it's expressive quality the the central performances the the mysterious nature of it all the you know the kind of darkness lying within the uh you know, the promise of uh, America that's in the, the social commentary there. I loved it. It was, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant film, I think, that uses the glamour of Hollywood to expose the, you know, the darkness underneath and all of that. And that's, uh, you know, it made a huge impression on me that way. One of the most uh, immediately enrapturing experiences I had this year, uh, relatively early on, too. Yeah, that's fantastic. I it struck a, a large chord with me as well. I mean, it left an impression, and it was yeah. something I initially thought of putting at the near the end of my list, but didn't quite make it in. I'm glad that we did a, a whole podcast on it because uh, it really was uh, a great one. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of thoughts out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So check that one out if you want to hear a little bit more thoughts on it. Uh, Place in the sun. <laughs> um, for me, another very patient kind of cinema. Um, one that was full of beauty and poetry. It's poetry, uh, 2010's poetry by uh, Li Chang-dong. Really, really fantastic. And um, I think you're seeing more that I'm leaning toward poetic choices within the top five. They're all kind of visual poetry, which is kind of what I gravitate to anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I like a documentary and I like the illusion of cinema, but uh, a visual poetry is really striking to me. And um, this is... Uh, a fantastic one um i this woman just wants to complete a poem and um she's so soft in how she presents herself to the world but but the world is so hard and what it gives back to her um the young boy she's the caretaker of her, her grandson uh, he's accused of raping a girl i believe and it, it follows like her her devastation around that but but also her trying to live softly through poetry and learn how to express herself in a way that she never has after a lifelong a long life um she's trying to put into image what what the words are that what it all meant to her and really astounding work and i went through um all of dong's movies the last year uh really great i mean i all i had was burning before now so burning was one that i watched earlier this year which was one that i i considered for the list but uh uh, you know, ultimately just went with some other things that resonated more, but it was definitely a fantastic film. And I think more people are coming to to discover him because of yeah. uh, the, the success of Burning. And I think poetry, even even a better film somehow, I mean, Burning, fantastic, but uh, poetry, I fell in love with immediately. I bought the Blu-ray. I, I watched a couple times. Um, it's become another fast favorite of mine. Uh, I'd also recommend is quickly uh, Peppermint Candy and... Uh, um, what else? What else did he have? He had a uh, Secret Sunshine, another one about uh, parenthood and keeping and losing children in a way. Nice. It seems to be a reoccurring theme of his: his the missing child and and the persecuted uh, child. Mm -hmm. It's uh, definitely good to see more. Uh, again, the the new wave Korean, you know, uh, trend is, has been uh, very fruitful for everyone, I think, yeah. and so definitely. Uh, Keep keep going beyond those uh, Bong Joon Ho films. You know, there's there's more Please out do. there. Yeah. <laughs> Please get beyond the one inch barrier of only <laughs> only Bong Joon Ho films. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lee Chang Dong is a great place to go. Uh, Maybe better. Who knows? <laughs> we we need like one or two more examples from him where he's just out of the park. I feel like another one's coming. So hopefully, hopefully. All right, uh, number two here. So this is. 
the last chance I think on my list here for us to align on anything. Oh no. Maybe maybe we have a similar one, but I'm but I'm doubting it based I on doubt it. our our conversation too, which is all right. But uh, so so far we've had a great variety in our lists and differences, which I think is awesome and shows the different personal reflections we've had. But uh, this one I think was was definitely in line in one of my favorites, not only films but trends of of watching within our community this this year and we also talked about it somewhat at length that was uh john woo's bullet in the head okay fantastic. <laughs> almost made mine as well i thought about it for a long yeah, time yeah i thought that might be the the only one that would would we definitely click on uh that's part of why i didn't include here. it honestly i thought we could get mileage out of you doing it yeah well and again like we already had a whole podcast discussion on it yeah. because all of us watched it like we're inspired to by each other being totally blown away by it and i watched it for a second time not too long ago uh i showed a couple of people it and they were also <laughs> entirely like like taken by it again the, the fusion of his typical over-the-top dramatic action sequences with the uh you know anti-war commentary and uh the you know the the tragic you know relationship you know falling apart there with the the trio and it, and it really is just like this this mesmerizing and you know incredible film non-stop you know uh for the whole time there and just as you know like, like just blows anything else action wise out of the water in terms of both how entertaining it could be at times but also just like how haunting and you know terrifying to to watch it can be uh that's another one to check out the podcast for if you want even more discussion on it we both loved it you know immensely <laughs> really satisfying and it really won me over to woo and that whole category of action cinema yeah and and again it was another like great experience watch in terms of just like we had four or five of us who all watched it around the same time and came away with you know equally astonished impressions so you know that's that's always really satisfying when when you can have that collective you know shared viewing and, and it just all resonates down the line well we're we're getting close here yeah <laughs> okay number two for me um well i think you've probably heard me talk about it at least once i've watched a lot of agnes varda films the last year um i've watched I, over 30 now i figured she would make your list in in some manner considering how many you watched i was like there there has to be one at least <laughs> there has to be one that's made it through but really a representation of a whole sin a whole filmography made of love um and the most compassionate director i've ever found so uh, for me that score is really big um and being French, I think I, I give a certain value yeah. <laughs> to, to a kind of left bank filmmaker that tells the truth. Um, and if you, Agnes don't, if you don't know Calvin, a uh, great lover of French culture, you know, France in general, language of France. Uh, so no, yes. no surprise here necessarily. Say <laughs> la vie and Agnès Varda is one of the best filmmakers I've ever found. Um, I'm just enamored with everything. I mean, I she has like two movies that I was like, let's see what she was doing. They were okay. The rest are like some of the greatest documentaries I've ever seen at number two. I have murmurs, which is about uh, graffiti art within um, California, but specifically LA. And I would say graffiti and that kind of art is my favorite physical representation of like artistic soul and spirit. Um, as you'll know, like Jet Set Radio is my favorite video game. I love graffiti and, and what it means. I, I like how counterculture it is. 
And I feel like she captures the stories of the people who made it. And it's not just about the art on the walls, but the people who made it, it's about their tragedy and their loss. And it's about their suffering. It's about art going missing and how art could appear on a wall at any time. Um, um, and from tragedy and loss, it shows how you can project those feelings into the most colorful portraiture that covers the city. And I feel like it creates an identity for the city. So uh, we talk about things like gentrification and what goes away. And uh, you see like parts of walls being removed, but here it's about putting the things up and what it really means to have those established uh, about like loss of family and then like creating a portrait that resembles them. So everyone knows about it. I mean, that's a big part of, you would say like Hispanic culture and the, it it's resonates through LA. You see it on every wall that you're reminded of family and, and love. And uh, I feel like uh, Agnes Varda creates her cinema the same way as a graffiti artist does just all about love and memory and commemorating loss, like a two complete films or more than two about uh, Jack to me and uh, just the most stunning relationship they had. Uh, I, I'm so enamored with her. I love her. She She's definitely, uh, you know, definitely kind of singular filmmaker uh, that I need to get to more of uh, personally. And the, you know, Criterion releasing her complete box set this this last year as well was a pretty fantastic uh, tool for anyone to kind of get into her filmography and such and uh, having that so accessible. And uh, yeah, you, I definitely know based on all the, the conversations I've been having with you off, you know, podcasts and such that she made a huge impression, you know, climbed the way to, to one of your favorites uh, this last year. So uh, to ha have her included and particularly so high is... Uh, <laughs> essential i think i i think it represents i think you have to have like boonwell and you have to have varda on my list or, or the year doesn't make sense i mean right those are the two things that that influenced me the most i would say i mean it, it's not just like this one movie or something it's it's like varda has 10 that i think are are near classics or classics themselves so right Def definitely have to have that as a takeaway <laughs> all right we're we're nearing all Thank right, num number one. Here we go. Drum roll. Duh, 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 duh. All right. So mine, uh, I think it's very characteristic of me. Uh, it's an old Hollywood film. It's uh, it's from that that nice great time period. It's comedy. Uh, I love, or at least you know, it's comedy. I, I would say it's the most hysterical film from the 1940s, starring Gary Cooper, not named The Fountainhead. Hey. <laughs> And, and that would be Howard Hawks's Ball of Fire. Which, oh, wow. This high? Yeah, this high. And, uh, you know, I watched this really, really early last year. This was yeah. the, the ninth movie I watched the entire year. Uh, and I was just so enamored with it. Again, this, this is a thing where it's going to be like, there are better films that I've listed so far and better films I've watched. But I... Not, not only did I love this film so much, but I've watched it more than any other time. I watched this movie three times this year at different points, just because I wanted to dive back into it. I was, I was entirely endeared by the relationship between Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck throughout. Now, I think that's the other big discovery that you haven't mentioned this year that we've had is that we collectively love Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> we we love Barbara Stanwyck so much. She's, she's such an icon and an image and a stunning beauty. And I, you know, I, I could pick any number of her films, but God, I, I really love her in Ball of Fire here. She's this like wisecracking, street smart, you know, nightclub dancer who's av av avoiding the cops because of this involvement with her gangster boyfriend. And she ends up taking refuge in 
the, the this house uh, full of uh, these different uh, professors and such, like these these doctorates who are who have been spending the past several years working on an a, you know an all encompassing encyclopedia project. And they all have these different specialties and such. And Gary Cooper's is, is language. And he's been working on slang. He's been working on the slang section, but he's been so far stuffed into his little world that he's entirely out of touch with the slang of today in the 1940s. <laughs> and so when he when he does get exposure to it, he's like, oh my God, all of my work, I need to, to redo it. And so he has to bring in people like, like Stanwick and such to kind of get mm. them all up on the, the jive talk and, and everything going on. And it's very funny. I think Gary Cooper is a very great comedian when handled right. Uh, if, if you play him straight entirely and he does a great job here. I think, uh, you know, Howard Hawks does a great job with the direction of both of them. Greg Toland is the cinematographer and he, you know, he's the same guy who shot Citizen Kane the same year even. Yeah. And it's, and it's stunning. There's some really great usage of shadows, uh, you know, throughout in a comedy film, no less. You don't think about a comedy film as being something visually great. And, and of course the big thing that I'm not stating yet, you know, uh, is that the script is from Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett together. And this is the last project they, they wrote for before, you know, Wilder went on to direct and he, and he learned, you know, a lot of directing on the set of Ball of Fire. He, he kind of shadowed Howard Hawks to, to learn more of what to do. And I think his voice really comes through. I love the usage of, of language throughout the script. Like language is a, is a central part of it. Like the whole part, uh, the way in which they solve the conclusion of the film is that, like, like they've been struggling the entire time with the, the gangsters lingo and everything going on. But in order to outsmart them, they use their own very, you know, like, like intellectual terminology and reference points to communicate with one another underneath their noses to, you know, subvert and overcome them, which I think is just a really like genius way to to kind of work up to a climax there and utilize the spoken word as medium you know as as a legitimate force there i think it's very funny throughout but the the romance is is a key component as well well that just works perfectly for me i i, I believe it where where you don't always necessarily like i don't always need the romance to work in my comedy you know romance films but it absolutely does here and it, and it I just grew to love it more and more with each time and it stuck in my mind and it just made it such an immediate impression kicking off the year right that I, I didn't feel good putting it anywhere else than at the top. I'm so glad I could see all the combined elements now how it got that far. I don't know a lot about it yet. Another thing I have to look into. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it, particularly you as a newfound, you know, Stanwick fan and such. And uh growing Wilder fan too. <laughs> uh, a lot of these things and a toll and appreciator. So. Howard Hawks too. This was off the yeah. heels of his girl Friday, so you know, we're Great. still in that same groove. <laughs> I see how it hits everything that you like in a way. Everything I like. Again, even if it's not you know, out and out the best film on this yeah. list, which I, I don't necessarily think it is. It it's it appeals what you've to me about all year though definitely and it appealed to me in such a specific way and uh you know i i was so enamored with it i'm i'm just excited to even rewatch it again you know and and you, you know i just i love these kind of comedy films i love these these screwballs and such you know and uh the, the, having something that wasn't old hollywood at the top definitely would have seemed <laughs> out of character so it this all worked out anyway <laughs> i guess that brings us to my number one yeah let's hear it I'm excited. Well, you know, I don't know if you know this about me, how much I like the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's really my favorite place where I was born. No, um, I love the Pacific Northwest, but I happen to like other things too. Um, I happen to like great war movies. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. Come yep. and See It, number one, which I think was very predictable based on the devastating impression it's left on me throughout the year. I, I, I alluded like it, to it. That's what I was yeah. alluding to earlier. <laughs> I feel like it not just changed my interests in ways that some of these films have. All of these films have directed my interests. Uh, everything on my list has directed me towards something else, at least, and usually towards something new. Um, this pretty self-contained. Um, this just changed me more as a person. Like inside, I felt different and darker than I did before I watched this. Uh, I don't know if I if I recommend it at any time. I think it. I had to find the right time and place for it, and I'm so glad I did because it's it's worth savoring in the right moment. I thought all year about how the 14 year old actor uh, faced with death and destruction, how his hair naturally turned gray during the production. Wow. Um, we've seen its influence throughout the year. I mean, I watched Grave of Fly- Fireflies, which I mentioned earlier, of course, which is an older film, but we had Painted Bird just this year, which uh, actually has the actor, the 14 year old from uh, this really? movie as a grown up. Yeah. And it's shot in, in stark black and white. Uh, same uh, style of cinematography and everything as this, but nothing I've ever seen comes close to the, the devastation of this and, and the heartbreak of a, uh, and it's all in close-ups of a child's face. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of child actors, and I think this Definitely. is ethically, <laughs> ethically a horrible idea. I mean, I would not make this film or advise anyone to do it. I, I mean, even watching it, I feel like it's a dark movie it, it's dark that it exists but but war is dark i mean the the experience of children that see war and god i mean it's heartbreaking i've sat with it all year and i don't know what to do with it uh, i mean i got the blu-ray i don't know if i could even watch it again I, yeah I that, that's the interesting thing because you asked me the same about war and peace is that is it a film you even want to watch again and that's, that's another one like uh a, a interesting thing and it shows i think the importance of curation and distribution and stuff that a number of our films here are movies that got a, a proper release or were put out in the market in 2020 and that's the way in which we both discovered a lot of these for the first time is that they were made available to us in a form <laughs> that they uh, hadn't before. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought before the obvious things like Apocalypse Now must be the best war movie, but it, I mean, if that one is, if, if that wants to say this is Vietnam, but this is reality. I mean, this is, this is closer than any documentary I've seen other than the act of killing toward coming toward like the, the, the real idea of war and the heartbreak and devastation, the actual fallout of it. Uh, there's no celebration to it um there's there's no glory in this movie at all um it's relentless and i i'd want everyone to see it but at the same time i don't i don't think anyone should i mean you shouldn't like this movie either it's not on number one because i like it it's because i respect it and i can't deny the power it had i i guess uh yeah that's the big thing i guess conversely with our list here is that a lot of mine are jovial fun movies <laughs> not just specifically the ball of fire and come and see contrast yeah. but the whole the whole list there is a lot of 
like I was entirely entertained and endeared, you know, by all of these and, and yours are definitely more serious, you know, depressing in some places, you know, not I'm like entirely. A, I'm like, I want to explore why I don't like getting my eye cut open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that shows a great, uh, like coverage there in terms of, of yeah. one. I'm more than happy to supply all the entertaining and, uh, you know, uh, fun, fun loving comical musical films and such and you can provide the, the serious ones <laughs> i think we did a good job we we have a wide range we have a lot of countries represented uh several languages uh, different genres of film um we have everything from like documentaries to musicals to uh throwbacks to old hollywood um a lot of great creators that we both love mm-hmm well, I, I, yeah, I think this was a great year overall. I'm very excited to look forward to, to 2021 here and all of the new things we'll discover and talk about. Uh, definitely excited to get back into our, our, our regular film discussions as well. But man, this was a great way to go over just some of our, our best watches, best things. Because, uh, you know, there was a lot here, obviously, that we did already highlight in a couple of the podcast ones I listed, but also ones that we haven't had a chance to yet or ones True. that, you know, there were singular experiences for me. I don't expect you to to go and watch War and Peace just so we can have a podcast discussion yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah, it's a way for us to get to those things that defined our year that we couldn't just fit into episodes, but but also some we could. So. Yeah, and, and a good range here. We got your uh, 2021, you know, your 2020 film here listed as well. We got, you know, lots of different uh, serious ones. We got an early, the earliest animation film made our list as well, which is uh, great. And I, I'm very happy with how this conversation went. I think we got so much coverage. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I suppose we're ready to uh, wrap it up then. Uh, thanks for tuning in this week. Make sure as always to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at Calvin Kemp and at David a punch. Don't forget our sister video game show, the daydream cast with Pavlos and Brogan. It's available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and a rating if you can. Uh, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Thanks again for meeting with me, Calvin. Thanks, man.